0: Amen. Good morning. Again. Yeah. Um, we are in Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bible and want we'll to open it to Daniel chapter 3, we'll be there in just a minute. Um, I'm excited to continue this journey through this uh, wonderful book of the Bible. It's, it's interesting. We pointed out Daniel is really well known, but still feels like there's so much that we don't know about him. Uh, well, this story today that we're looking at in Daniel 3 is... Very well-known story, even outside of Christianity, uh, outside of the normal circles in the Bible Belt South. Uh, people know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If they don't know those names, they at least know these three guys that went into a furnace and came out. I mean, it's one of those stories that uh, people opposed to Scripture would mock because it's ridiculous. It's, it has to, it's impossible. It's physically impossible for that to happen. Yes, that's the point of the story. It's a miracle. This God of creation has control over all creation. He's sovereign over all things. And I'm going to ask you this morning, if this story is familiar to you, that you try to come to the text with a fresh mind. Because it's an amazing story. And I don't want you being familiar with it to ruin that for you. So if you can, as we read through it, we're going to read through the entire chapter. Uh, it's not as long as Jesse's, thank God. because that. It's exhausting, last time I just played. Uh, but I am grateful that it's not as long because it's exhausting for me to read. Uh, but reading out loud uh, the Word of God, we trust that it is His Word. We trust that it carries truth, that it's more than just a story. So we're, gonna, we're not just going to read it, we're going we're gonna to hear it proclaimed. We're going we're gonna to see how God has given us this gift of His Word, uh, that it would point us to the, to the worship of our King and to see His might, to see His power over the kings of the earth. And so let's take a look, Daniel chapter 3, and see what God's doing. All right, morning. it's very repetitive. So get used to me saying things over and again. Repetition is important to this culture, it emphasizes things, so the things that are repeated know that it has significance, and we'll get into that in just a bit. <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So... Everyone who's somebody is invited to this inauguration of this uh, image that he has created to worship him because he's the one that created it. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Bagpipe and every kind of music. All the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time that at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King, live forever! You, O King, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image I have set up? So there's there's no need to answer It's a rhetorical question. Let's just see. Verse 15. Now, if you are ready... When you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? It's a great question. And they answer, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, and their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. So they didn't waste any time, heat it up, toss them in. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, who was watching the whole thing, was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, It's convenient that every important person around is here to witness. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation or language that speaks against anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Incredible. All right? This story of deliverance, the story, this miraculous historical narrative that goes into depth, goes into detail, explaining the power of this God. Despite what this king thought, in fact, he, he declares at the end that anyone against this God will be destroyed. Well, he's He's prophesying something that he doesn't even realize he's prophesying. It's true. Everyone who's against this God will be destroyed. But he doesn't even realize even now, as we'll learn in weeks to come, who exactly he's talking about. In fact, this term he uses, most high God, still is saying there's other gods, but he's the most high. So for a second, he's realizing I'm not the greatest God. Now we don't know if Neo-Babylonian kings viewed themselves as gods, but it's apparent here that's what Nebuchadnezzar is desiring. He wants to be worshipped. And there's a lot we can see in common with this third chapter and the first chapter. These people of God are tempted to be like everyone else and they withstand uncompromising their their faith in the one true God. And this should be us. This, This should be our model. We've emphasized a few times it's not primarily a role model for us to follow, but we need to see these are people of God. This is what it should look like to follow God. This audacious behavior, this standing before a king, looking him in his face and saying, doesn't matter what you do to me, I'm not going to lose faith in my God. Even if he doesn't save me, I'm not bowing to your idol. This should be us. However, if we don't rightly see how this can be us, we'll easily pile onto ourselves ourselves all these rules to follow, all this way of doing life, this shape we have to fit, will pressure ourselves into legalism. Doing everything we have to do so that we can appear to be people of faith. If we don't rightly see where this faith comes from. So how much does our allegiance to God actually cost? Everything. It costs us everything. We're, our life is not our own. We have to see that clearly. It needs to be clear to us today. You do not belong to you if you belong to Jesus. You're His, and all of you is His. We need to understand the way we attain this faith is because Christ gave His life to buy us. We're His, we belong to Him. So, any sidestep from that, any deviation from all faith is in Christ, is idol worship. It's namely worshiping ourselves. Now, it's clear here, deliverance is probably the most obvious theme of this story, but there's a lot going on, and specifically deliverance for those who refuse to bow to false gods, but to get to that point of deliverance. So we understand salvation in three parts. In, in Scripture, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We've talked about that before. This justification once and for all. We're saved, declared innocent because of Christ. We're wrapped in His righteousness. And one day we'll be totally free, and our glorification will be totally free from sin. Both of those are obvious deliverance. Deliverance from the penalty of sin, which is eternal damnation. It's the flames of hell forever. And that's our justification. Now freedom from the ongoing struggle we have now with sin will one day come and that's our glorification. It's obvious those are deliverance. But sanctification is difficult. Sanctification is this misery that we experience as we war against sin in our lives. These glimpses of goodness that we see in Christ, this drawing us to Himself, this perfecting that's going on. This being made holy is a painful process, but it's for our good. It's for the glory of God. And this story shows us all of these. It shows us this picture of deliverance that we will be saved through Christ. And we, we, we were saved and we will be saved. But it also gives us this picture of what it looks like to have the impurity burned away. And so we need to get into this, but I want to ask you some questions as we're, get, as we're processing through this. I want you to reflect a lot today. I want you to think about your heart. I want you to think about the idols you worship. The things in your life you value that you wouldn't consider idols and, and just think about where your allegiance actually lies. Do we worship God above everything? And do we worship God in everything? What do you value the most in life? What do you fear the most in life? Do we have a faith that's securely in Christ that, that says, I will be faithful to Jesus no matter the consequence? If we're going to be a people who claim to have faith in Christ, we have to consider what exactly that means. What could test our allegiance? What could push us too far? What would the world have to take from us? If not our own life, maybe the lives of those we love. Maybe our health. Maybe our wealth. What would the world have to take to us before you turn on Christ? Now surely we would say there's nothing, but I want you to really search your soul today as we work through this text. Do we compromise in any way our faith in Christ? Do we justify our behavior in order to worship things of the world? Do we justify things in our lives so that we can have some self-indulgence every once in a while? And the reason I ask this question is because it's evident all throughout Scripture, God above all else. In fact, the first two commandments He gives His people in Exodus chapter 20 or have no gods before me and don't worship any idols. He says, and it says, And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So he's covering all his bases. Don't worship anything. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's he's giving you this clear warning. Worship me alone above all else. Or it's going to go very badly. But for those who actually worship me, you will... For the thousands, there will be a steadfast love. Love me, I love you. Now, we're going to draw some distinctions in a little bit of what exactly he's saying when we look at King Nebuchadnezzar. But despite these explicitly clear commandments in the Word of God, that's throughout Scripture, alongside all of these clear commandments to worship God above all else, we find the people of God worshiping everything else. I actually made a long list of all the ways God's people compromise and I decided to take it out because it was depressing. It was also too long. We would have been here all day just reading. But you can go through starting with Adam and see the people of God constantly turning to worship self, to worship idols, physically bowing for, before idols and in their hearts exalting other things above God, just easily conforming to the ways of the world. Despite the fact that it's so clear he's saying don't do that. It's going to go badly for you if you do this. In fact, that's the reason the people of God find themselves in exile in Exodus and in Babylon and today. Because we worship the things of the world. Humankind cannot help but be religious. And... and. By religion, I mean we we know there's something beyond us. We know there's something that we have to attain. And so we make these systems to figure out how do we attain it. How do we get that? And so we build religion. We see the brokenness in the world. We see the need for redemption. And we don't trust Christ with it. So we have to figure out our own ways to it. Even within Christianity, we try to figure out ways to attain this. Now, I don't know what your idols are, but I'm certain that you have them. I'm still trying to figure out what idols I'm worshiping. I can see some of them and I'm at war against it. But I know there's evil in my heart as I'm continuing to be sanctified that I want to put to death. And I'm asking you, my brothers and sisters, help me in this as I help you in this. Let's kill these idols because Jesus is better. There's a creator, the one true God that's better than anything in creation. So whatever it is to help you process, we turn to food, we turn to media, we turn to social media, sports, hobbies, entertainment, family, friends, status, work, or just busyness. All sorts of worldly things. Whatever it is, we serve and worship idols thinking we're going to find what we're looking for. That's the internal struggle of man in all of life, every day. The internal struggle we face is what idols are we worshiping? And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is facing here. Now, he, he may aspire to be worshipped by all of people as if he's a god, but he's just a man trying to establish his kingdom. And the truth is we're doing precisely the same thing. Now, most likely when you look in this story, you want to be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I do too. I'm with you. But we're not those three men here. Sometimes there's maybe glimpses in our lives where we're faithful in that way. And at first I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm just the rest of Israel, the, the rest of the, those in exile. Maybe I'm the, the people of Babylon. I'm one of the satraps, whatever that is. I'm one of these guys showing up and bowing to the image. But I think more clearly as I studied this passage, I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm trying to establish my own kingdom. I want everything to be about me. And we learned in the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is a religious man like all of people. In fact, he has these dreams and he knows they mean something. This is a sign that he knows there's something beyond him. So he's begging people to interpret these dreams and Daniel interprets it and he sees clearly the God that Daniel worships is the Most High God. He declares everyone should see and know Daniel's God is the Most High God. In fact, the chapter before that, he experienced a similar thing when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were... We're refusing to eat his food. And they end up healthier than everybody else. And he says, okay, their God must be the most high God. But somehow he keeps forgetting this. It's like this dream he had. Remember, his, Daniel said, you're the golden head. It's like he heard that and just stopped listening. And Daniel finished and he was like, oh yeah, good job. You're God's most high. Golden head. I'm the golden head. He just kept thinking on that. And so this is years later, but at some point it materialized. And he actually has an image built of gold so that people would worship him. It's a monument. And and monumental architecture is is established for one purpose. It's remembrance, yes. But it's established as an expression of power. The means is to invoke worship or to provoke fear. If you've ever stood before a monument, like in Washington, D.C., we have tons of them. You just stand before them. They're massive. They're awe inspiring. People built these. And they they cause you to remember these great men in history. It's it's trying to stir up in us worship of these things that we accomplished as Americans. And it wants you to feel like the, the people who designed these want you to feel in awe. It's worship. And we don't know what exactly Nebuchadnezzar had built. So there's this picture of this statue, this image of him in our heads. Now it could be that it, it's they use the word image, so it's likely something that points to Nebuchadnezzar. But the dimensions were given. The ratio is ten to one. So it's in our in our understanding, it's it's about 90 feet high and only nine feet in diameter. So it's this needle-like standing needle-like. Emblem like a redwood tree standing in the middle of a plain, the plain of Dura, before all people, coated in gold, so that when the sun hits it, it shines. This pillar—it's probably very similar to the Washington Monument. Only the Washington Monument's bigger. It's same same ratio though, because it's Washington Monument. I looked it up. I didn't just—I don't just know this fact. It's 55 feet wide, 555 feet high. So very similar in the way it would be shaped. In fact, it could even be the same shaped building. But it could also be a pedestal with a statue on top of King Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever it is, the point is everything surrounding this image is beckoning the people to come and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. It's indicative that Nebuchadnezzar desires to be worshipped. And not just the fact that he's put this up for all the people, but the guest list includes the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. He wants everybody who's somebody, everybody who has status, come and bow before me. And then the music he chooses, the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music. These things are repeated again and again because it wants to make clear We need everything. We want this to be a huge party. Every kind of music you can imagine, let's have it. All the people of the kingdom. All the people of different languages. I want everyone to come and see that I'm the greatest king. I want you to bow before me and worship. And the expectation is clear. You're going to fall down and you're going to worship when you hear this music. And just in case there's anyone who refuses, let's have some consequences in place. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And if that's not clear enough, the word worship is used over and over. Verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 18, verse 28. All speaks of worshiping King Nebuchadnezzar. There's no doubt his desire is to be worshiped. He wants to be put above everyone else on this pedestal for all to see, standing in the middle of the plain, for everyone who comes by to see Nebuchadnezzar's monument, to know he's the greatest king. And you may have missed it, but who's responsible for setting up this image? It was a joke. You shouldn't have missed it. It was repeated over and over again. The image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In fact, verse 3 says it twice. King Nebuchadnezzar sets this up. Why is that important? Because it's interesting, looking back at chapters 1 and chapter 2, that he's at this point right now. This guy who recognizes there's a Most High God. Apparently, he's failed to grasp or even remember what he himself said. How is this possible that someone recognizes there's a God who's higher than all other gods, who's witnessed this amazing feat of of fattening up people while they're just eating vegetables, who's witnessed this amazing feat of having a dream not only interpreted, but told to him exactly what happened in the dream. How is it that he can go from there, witnessing the, the amazing God that created all things, to this point where he's begging people, demanding people, worship him? It's so foolish. Does it sound like anybody you know? That we can know God and somehow still make it all about us? Why do we do this? C.S. Lewis has an idea. In The Weight of Glory, he wrote, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. The thing about this commandment of God to have no gods before him, to not bow to any idols, saying that he is a jealous God, sounds weird, right? He's egocentric or something. The reason he says these commands is not the same motive that Nebuchadnezzar has. It's not a demand on us. He's beckoning us to see he wants the very best for us. And we're not going to find it in any any image we create. We're not going to find it in any false god that we would bow to. We're not going to find it in ourselves. Anything that could be gained from an idol is a pathetic, pathetic offering in comparison to the goodness of the Most High God. fools to think otherwise. Furthermore, if if, if there's anything that we could gain from any person or anything in this world and if there's anything that could be taken from us that would damage our allegiance, our faithfulness to God, then we must not actually know Him. The Apostle Paul understood this well and after writing about all the things he accomplished, he writes in Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 and 8, but whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Now, this should not be considered radical Christianity, this should not be extreme to us. The fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would say, well, throw us in the fire. We're not bowing to your God. It should not sound extreme if we know God. If we see how good He is. If we know how faithful He is. This is not radical of them. This is Christianity. That we have tasted and seen how good our God is. The only way we would resist, the only way we would cave, the only way we would give in to idol worship is if we're... Easily pleased by the things of the world. It's not that it's too difficult, it's that we're too easily pleased. We either worship the true God or we settle for worshiping creation. There's not an in between, there's not a sometimes I'll worship God, sometimes I won't. We're either worshiping the true God or we're worshiping creation. And with this broken mind of ours, we need it to be renewed. With this deceptive heart of ours, we need a new heart. With these selfish desires of ours, we need our desires replaced because we're idol worshipers. And we should hate this about ourselves. We should hate the old you. You should hate your desire to indulge in sinful things. We should put it to death. It's killed Christ, but Christ overcame it. He overcame sin and death so that we could worship Him. We are worshipers. You are worshiping. Everyone, whether Christian or not, you're a worshiper. And there's this war going on, the, the selfish us, lusting for the things of the world, and we, we find the, the elite among us, the celebrities. We find the famous and the infamous and the insta famous, whatever it is. We find these people we want to be like and we idolize them. We have one of the most popular TV shows in American history is called American Idol. How much more in your face do we need to get about it? We worship people easily. If it's not people, it's stuff. And thanks to social media, we have a bigger platform than ever to obsess over image and materialism. We're we're consumeristic. We're vain. We worship idols, and the biggest idol of them all is ourselves. Our looks, our abilities, our possessions, our power, our freedoms, our heritage, our satisfaction. We demand it be about us, even in small ways, and there's no room for any of it, because even the smallest things will grow to destroy us. In Romans chapter 1, we hear clearly this this very warning. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them in their, gave them up in their lust and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We must see our idols, our creatures. They cannot be above the creator. We have to see them in our lives. As a church, we need to identify our idols. We need to see what we're worshiping as the crossing church. As the people of God, where do we bow? Is it all about Jesus or is it about our way of doing things? As individuals, we have to see our idols. And we have to put them to death. And we can do so by giving thanks to God for the freedom we have in Christ to worship Him alone as the true God, as the true Lord of all creation. And if we don't kill our idols, they will kill us. If we don't destroy them, we will be overcome by the lust of our hearts and be destroyed. But if we worship Jesus, nothing can touch us. And that's the second part of this Story in Daniel 3. Let's pick it back up. And the image was set up. The people are expected and demanded to worship it. And three men of God say, no, I'm not going to bow. And it says there were certain Chaldeans in verse 8 who are not, who are no doubt racist. I mean, they hate the Jews. They point out, you know, when people tell stories and they make sure you know the race of the person they're talking about. That's a racist thing to do. That's what they're doing here. You know, the Jews that you appointed. But also they're jealous because these are captives of war and they've somehow been given these high spots in ranking above these natives. So these Chaldeans come to the king and they they maliciously accuse the Jews. They declare to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree. And then they go on to tell every detail of the decree as if he didn't know and to remind him you, you said they are going to be punished in this way. These Jews you gave authority to, they're refusing to bow to you. So the king is upset. He calls them in. He gives them the run through. He says, hey, look, you know, this is what you're expected to do. I'm going to see the music play and I'm going to see you bow, right? And if you don't, here's what's going to happen. And their response is incredibly bold. And they say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter, if this is so, if what you're saying is true, our God whom we serve will deliver us. And they go on. But if, if He doesn't, even if He doesn't deliver us, we're still not going to serve your gods. We're not going to worship the image. We will not bow. And the king is filled with fury and the expression of his face changed. I love that detail. He's so angry, the expression of his face changed. Like he's shocked by it. And so, in this rage, he has the fire increase. He, he has his mightiest men bind these guys and throw them into this uh, into this oven, this kiln, this, this furnace. Now, these are these are common means of execution in the time. So they have this giant, like barrel shaped uh, kennel, or that's not the word for it, kiln. This where they where they melt their metals, where they burn. <laughs> kennels where you put a dog. I know. I'm <laughs> So they have these giant barrel-shaped things with chimneys at the top and doors or slots on the sides where they can pull out the ashes and put in the coal. And then they have these openings on the top with these earthen ramps leading up to it where they can toss men in for execution. So this is a common practice, but it's so out of control because of the urgency of the situation because the king is so angry. He has them heated seven times harder than normal. It's so hot that as they're being tossed in, these mighty men of Nebuchadnezzar's army are killed just from standing too close now this furnace filled with fire is symbolic it's, it's a real story it actually happened but it's symbolic of so much more as we see fire symbol, symbolize so much more all throughout scripture it's, it's either judgment and punishment or it's a means of refinement and, and both are going on here and both are in the hands of the Lord Judgment In Sodom and Gomorrah, we see it's destroyed by fire for their sin. Two cities so wicked, they're destroyed by fire from God. In Amos chapter 1, Israel's neighbors are destroyed by fire for their transgressions. In Revelation, we see described this final judgment, this eternal judgment, is a lake of fire for the enemies of God to forever have the wrath of God poured out on them in the form of fire. And as far as refinement is concerned, we see in, in Malachi, the refiner's tool is fire. He's purifying metals with fire. And Jesus is said by John the Baptist to come to baptize with the Spirit and with fire. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 about the fire that tests the works of the servants of God. We build our buildings and then fire comes and it will test us and reveal whether or not we're, we're founded on Christ. It will reveal whether or not we reap an eternal reward. And then 1 Peter chapter one verse seven, Peter writes of a faith that is tested, and it's seen as precious, like gold that is purified by fire. So we have these two extremely different things. Fire destroys, and it refines. It reveals the true nature of something. So clear in Scripture. For the people of God, fire comes and it will refine us. It burns out the impurities. It burns away what doesn't belong. It makes us stronger. It frees us from the shackles, from the chains, from from the bindings. We're sanctified. This is the picture of sanctification. Fire comes and we're sanctified. And we can only survive if our faith is in Christ and if He is with us. Otherwise, The fire will consume you. Otherwise, the fire devastates. It destroys like these mighty men. You're killed by it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image to be worshipped as if he's God. And he thinks the fires of his furnace are in his control. He even says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? But we can't make the mistake of thinking Satan is in charge of the fires of hell. Because he's not. God is sovereign over all things. This is His furnace. And hell belongs to God. It's the lake of fire that is the wrath of God on His enemies for eternity. Jesus holds the keys of hell. And Satan will one day be locked up as well. So in the midst of this fire, there's there's another figure, right? There's this fourth figure that looks as a son of God. There was argument among scholars as to whether this is a pre-incarnate Christ. We do see that in Scripture. Uh, theophanies is what it's called. I'll, actually, I'll post something on that. Um, but I think it's because of the way the language phrase and because of this common term, as a son of God, and then later he says an angel delivered you. I think it's more likely it's an angel, but it doesn't really matter because it doesn't take away from the point here. They're not alone. God is with them. Now some of us are in fires right now in life. And it's so meaningful to know you're not alone in the midst of this fire. God is with you. He's got you. If you're His, He's got you. You're being refined. So as you experience the suffering, as you experience the pain, consider whether or not you've been looking at it wrongly. Consider whether or not you've seen it as judgment. As you, Have you seen it as something destroying you? Or if you consider that if you belong to God, that's never the case for fire. It's refining. You're being sanctified. Your heart can rejoice that you're not alone. Be grateful for the pain even. Because God is using it for your good and for His glory. And the fire has no power over you, just like it had no power over these three. They didn't even smell like smoke. The only thing the fire did is free them from their bindings. Unbound in the fire, you're not alone. And this message is significant for the people of God in Daniel's day because they're on the the verge of horrific devastation. Persecution is coming for the people of God. And so, for them to hear this story, to know of this fire, to see these men remain faithful despite that they're doomed to the fire, to stand before the king and say, We're not bowing to any other God, no matter what comes. This is no doubt encouraging to them. But even today, as people around our world are persecuted for the God they worship, refusing to bow to other gods, this is no doubt encouraging to them. Even for us in a country where we're free to worship whatever God we want to worship. We're labeled as intolerant. We're hated by the media. We're hated by certain people in our nation for the things we believe, for the God we worship, for what we stand against. But let's not bow to what the culture demands. Let's see that this God is worth standing for. And and remember, God doesn't primarily save you so that you can have a nice, comfortable life and enjoy all the things of the world. It's, It's not so we can get rich and be healthy so everybody can see how awesome our God is. And they'll want Jesus because they can have all the stuff we have. That's the lie of the prosperity gospel. These guys didn't go to this, this furnace thinking they were going to survive for sure. They just knew that even if they died, it was worth it. Don't consider this proof for a, a physical miracle in your life because th- there's no evidence of that. Even if they die, they're going to be faithful. And that's our position. If everything goes wrong, if we lose everything, even if we lose our lives, we're not seeking to gain something in this, on this earth. Seeking to gain Christ, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not seeking to gain some new status. They're not seeking to, to appease the king. They could have easily just said, "Okay, we'll bow physically, but we're not going to bow with our hearts, just so we can keep our lives." Because you know, God needs us. He needs us to stay here. And if we if we don't bow, they're going to kill us, and we won't be able to be a witness to all the Babylonians. It's a compromise. There's no compromise. It's so clear. All of you belongs to Jesus. And these these three men epitomized faith on that one day, at least. We know they sinned elsewhere because they're, they're people, but at least in this story, they showed us what it looks like to stand bold for our King. Now, these three also died eventually. They lived through this. And their physical deliverance from this furnace only allowed them to live however long God allowed them to live, and then eventually they died. But Jesus wasn't just faithful one day, He was faithful every day and always. He died also, but He didn't stay dead. So when we consider how can we have faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't look to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We look to Jesus. It's symbolic here because when Jesus gets out of the grave, it's a deliverance all the same, but it's a deliverance that's incredibly and, in fact, eternally significant for us because it's symbolic. This, this deliverance from a furnace is symbolic of a spiritual and eventual physical resurrection that we will experience. This deliverance from a fire has been done for us if we're in Christ, delivered from hell, and will be done for us if we're in Christ. Christ freed from the ongoing fires of this earth to forever be with him. Because he's faithful always. This is the connection that we need to make. This deliverance of God's people is all throughout Scripture. In fact, God uses this very same illustration to to talk about Egypt in Deuteronomy 4.20. He says, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his people. And in Isaiah 48:10 he speaks of this Babylonian exile as a furnace of affliction. Where these people are right now. So we see the symbolism Egypt is a furnace, Babylon is a furnace. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego literally go into a furnace. We continue to exist in the fires of this earth, but our sovereign and faithful Lord delivers his people from every fire. This historical redemptive narrative points to the one who ultimately frees us for eternity and our tendency is to some, for some reason elevate people. These faithful men, let's look to them. Let's follow their leadership. The truth is, they're only faithful because of a faithful God. Let's look to God. Consider these images, or consider this image that Nebuchadnezzar set up. This, this golden beam in the middle of the desert, the sun shining and all to see and bow to worship. His demands for them to worship in allegiance to Him alone. To to standing before the people as if He is a God. Forcing them to bow. And if they don't bow, they're going to suffer the wrath of His furnace. Now consider the image, the very image of the true God on the cross. Set up before all the people. Instead of demanding that they come and bow and worship, He beckons us to come. Instead of demanding we sacrifice ourselves for Him, He sacrificed Himself for us. He draws us to Himself. He's given Himself up so that we, instead of, instead of demanding we fall on our face and, and forcing us to worship Him, so that we would see how good He is. He's beckoning us to come and taste and see His goodness. That we would see He's better than anything this world has to offer. The bowing before Him, we find all that we need so we don't have to look anywhere else. We are satisfied in Christ. He is making us new. He replaces those desires. He replaces that heart. He renews our mind. So that we're no longer conforming to the ways of this world in these cycles. Trying to find something to drink in empty wells. Trying to find some sustenance and, and bread of the earth. Because He is the living one. He is the bread of life. He's everything we need. And so instead of being compelled to worship idols, we're compelled by the love of Christ to live all of life for Christ. No longer led by our own desires, but led by our desires in Christ. To worship Him above all else. So two things are sure for every Christian. There will be fire. Whether it's foes or woes, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be difficulties. But Christ has overcome the world. There will be fire. But God is faithful to see us through it. Always. And He's with us in all of it. Always. Even if it means you will physically die. All that is is delivering you into the arms of your father. The worst it can get is they take you out. The worst it could have got for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the fire kills them. And then they're with God forever. That's why Paul can so confidently say for me to live is Christ. Everything is Christ. All of me is Jesus. Everything about my life is worship of Jesus. And if I die, that's even better. Because I get to be with Him. Is that us? Some, some questions to reflect on. I told you I want you to reflect. Some things to consider when we consider this calling to give all of us to Jesus is do we actually believe He's better than what we can gain for ourselves? Is standing firm in obedience to Jesus, having no gods before Him, is it worth it? Whatever it may cost you. How can we confidently and boldly live for Christ in a culture that constantly stands opposed to our faith? Dismisses us as intolerant and demands we worship and conform to their ways of doing things. What is the most difficult thing you face in your life today? What is the hardest thing about your life right now? Are you tempted to see it as judgment or do you see God refining you? How are you motivated by this word today to live life on mission for God? And know that He will always see you through the flames of this world. And then lastly, how can you take what you've learned, how can you see these truths and go encourage somebody with it? Who can you encourage with this truth? Let's be a people that doesn't doesn't just consume this for our own benefit but proclaims this beautiful truth that our God is faithful always. that he, He's delivered us from hell. He's delivered us from eternal flames. And He will one day rescue us from this ongoing torment of wrestling and fighting and warring against sin. In fact, He's given us reason to rejoice here and now. We experience the joys of one another. We experience the goodness of our God in, in tasting good food and enjoying art, and enjoying music, and enjoying fellowship with one another. There's reason to celebrate now, even if you're in the middle of the furnace. Because God is faithful always. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Let it be that we don't just say thank You for Your Word. Let our hearts worship You for this Word. That we would be grateful for our God because we know our God. That we would see Your goodness. we wouldn't be easily satisfied by the things of this world. But that we'd identify the idols in our lives and destroy them before they destroy us. That we'd exalt Christ in our hearts so that we could stop exalting ourselves. That we would see any sacrifice of anything in this world is no sacrifice in light of Christ. That any suffering we endure in this world is no suffering in light of the sufferings of Christ. That we would remember the one who became sin though he never knew sin. So that we could become the righteousness of God. That we'd remember... Christ giving Himself up was purchasing us back from darkness. That we would devote ourselves to this calling to be ambassadors for Christ in all of life. And that we would not just identify the idols to destroy them because that's what we're supposed to do or because we feel bad about it or because we're afraid of hell. But that we would kill the idols because we see You're better that we would delight in You, that we would know Your commandments are for our good. That You are jealous for us because You want us to delight in You. And so let us sing songs of praise. Let us feast on what You've given us in Christ. Let us give to this mission all in worship of our King who stands above every King of the earth, the one true God.